0: cloud. Okay, welcome everybody to class number two on Kohelet. I'm very excited. So we already did the introduction um, and chapter one last week. So, uh, you know, in case you missed it, you can listen to the recording. Um, but we, we I want to emphasize that, although this book is very, you know, um, downbeat in certain ways, you know, you could kind of get down on yourself just from seeing the The negative thinking of the author and we also saw that the commentary here by Michael Fox uh, makes it clear that he believes that this is a narrator telling a story about a fictional character a character who is not really um, uh, an actual king but more of a proverbial king a proverbial king with Solomonic level of wisdom so once we see it in that light we could see that there's a, a message that he's trying to tell us and as we go through the book we're going to try to derive more and more of this wisdom and we could not we don't have to agree obviously with everything that's being written and we could sort of notice the the points that we think are really profound and first of all we pointed at the courage of just asking these questions which is an incredible thing just to ask the question of you know is there really a meaning to life am i deluding myself into believing in a meaning to life these are very cathartic things to ask um, and like we said last time, you know, you come to this class every Tuesday night, 8.30 to 9.30. This is the time to worry about these things. If you feel like these things are bothering you during the week, you could kind of transport them in time to now and bring them up any time during this class. And we're happy to discuss them. And I think it will serve you very well in your life. So just a brief introduction to this chapter. Michael Fox makes very good points in his introduction to it. He says, number one, that Kohelet has these conflicting judgments about pleasure. Pleasure, on the one hand, has this goodness to it. It's tov. It's it's almost, you know, it's just viscerally something that's good pleasure. Right? It's mankind's helek. It's his portion. But on the other hand, Kohelet's experience shows him that pleasure is inane. It's empty. It's ineffectual. It's senseless. And therefore, the toil that's producing pleasure means that pleasure itself is actually heavy because like we said last time you know I'll work very hard to uh, for studying for a test for example and the toil is very unpleasant and it hurts and it's painful and then I do well on the test and I, you feel good for like a second but the main feeling is a feeling of relief that you didn't do badly so it's not even a positive so it's like okay so what am I really doing this for what in this whole process was really worth it none of it was really that good so so we're going to address those points Um, wisdom of course is important here as well so there's this uh, balance between his wise element and the the experiential element that we're going to see as well as Kohelet has these contradictory attitudes about pleasure even though we're going to point them out they don't need to be logically reconciled this is very important you know the way he puts it here is people are not always consistent that's the beauty of a book like Kohelet it's very much a uh, a stream of consciousness of an individual—it's so real, you know. Just hearing the way that my friends Albert Mizrahi, who is actually on the Zoom, and uh, Morris Franco, the way that that they would talk about it, it, you know, really inspired me because it shows you the realness of this book. It's something that is not a finished product; it's not a perfect thing. And here you go, you know, put it on the refrigerator. It's something that brings you through the journey of this back and forth, the tension. That should not necessarily be resolved because in life, not all tensions are resolved. We feel different ways at different times because we're human. Um, and then finally, the last point I'll make in the introduction is that Kohelet has this attitude towards pleasure that seems to change over time. So when he first immerses himself in the pleasure on a grand scale, he, can, he discovers that it's empty and it fails to satisfy him. But then this is the interesting thing. So I always thought that that was Kohelet's conclusion. That, you know, pleasure is really not all that worth it. And even pleasure is hevel because it doesn't satisfy you. But this is the interesting point that I never noticed before. But eventually he came to realize that it is nevertheless tov. Even though pleasure itself can be hevel, it still could be tov. Why? It feels good. For the simple experiential fact that when you're in a pleasant mood or you're doing something that's pleasurable, it feels good. And that may, in a very downbeat way, that may be the best thing available. That It may very well be that nothing else in the entire world is worth in, you know, engaging in other than pleasure. This is an affirmation of pleasure, even though it's a downbeat one. So that's just super interesting to me. Oh, I want to put on, uh, I'm going to share my screen with you guys so that we can uh, look at the text together. So let me go. Oh, here we go. Uh, let me go to Kohelet, this is Safaria. Yep. Oh, this is Mechon let me go to Sepharia. Here we go. All right, Rasha Daph me. sorry for the delay. What do I find? Start at the beginning, maybe? Here we go. Uh, Here we go. Perfect. We go to Kohelet chapter two. Here we go. Chapter two. Okay, so let's begin. Ellie, you want to read? No, no, just regular. Very good. All right, so I said to myself, right, and we know "lev" in the Tanakh very often doesn't actually mean heart. Rather, what does it mean? I said to my head or my mind, right? Because they didn't really have a word so much in, in ancient times. Same in English. I'll take the heart. 100%, 100%. But often we use heart more as emotion, and whereas here it's both logic and emotion. I think. So he's saying to himself, the the uh, the person Kohele, is saying, "Let come, I will treat you to merriment. Would Ebe taste mirth, taste goodness? That too I found was futile. So how interesting is that? The word Anasicha." What could be the the shortish of the of the word, anasicha?
1: Nesech poor. S- say it again. Nesech, Nesech.
0: Good, Nesech. And uh, another thing that's um, suggested. Good alliteration
1: probably. there, Michael. Good alliteration yes, in again. that uh, pasuk. Which one? All- alliteration. A lot of alliteration.
0: Amarti ani I love that. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The chaf and the noon and the samach, I, I hear that. I do see that. That's beautiful. Um, and the, the very interesting meaning that blew me away is test you, right? Like nisayon a little bit. Anase otecha. right? Anasecha. we get confused because of the he here, but imagine it was a chaf sofit. It's really just a poetic way of writing anasecha with a chaf sofit, which means I will test you. Let me test you out. So this is kind of like a guy who reached the nadir of his life. He reaches the lowest of low points of depression. And he says to himself, all right, let me see what could actually make me happy. I have nothing left to lose. I know what my dad taught me. I know what all this stuff, you know, that I learned in school. But let me just test out the waters of this experience, this raw experience of 12 and of pleasure. Atta, I think, Anasikha. Anasikha, an, besimha. Oh, sorry, oh. Ani and Libi. He's testing. He's telling uh, his heart. He's telling himself, Ani. I told myself, let's test out this uh, pleasure. So let's read uh, verse two, uh, pasuk number two. This Amarti Meholal, Osa. Right? Of revelry, I said, it's mad. Of merriment, what good is that? Right? So he's saying. This is just a repeat kind of uh, of what he was saying earlier. So this idea of reverie, sehuk doesn't only have to be a negative thing. It could also be something that is positive. If you look in uh, Psalm 126, verse 2, it's actually appearing in the context of the joy of returning exiles. So you don't have to think of sehuk only as this, you know, uh, uh, empty thing. It could also be a positive thing. Right, it could be a positive thing that is really meaningful, a meaningful party for a wedding or for a, you know, a, a mitzvah, something like that, even that he is finding to be completely meholal, right? What could be the, the shorish of meholal? It could be like mahul, it could be mixed. It could be something that is, you know, a mixture of, uh, you know, goodness and also emptiness to it. He's noticing that it's not, it doesn't really have substance to it. And that's often how we might feel. You could go to a party sometimes. And this is sometimes how I I feel. I might be in a very meditative mood or a very melancholy mood. And then I'm expected, I'm thrown into a wedding and I'm supposed to dance like mad, you know, pun intended. I'm supposed to dance, but I'm not feeling that way per se. So you could be doing happy things and merry things, but you could also not be feeling so happy inside. So that I think is part of his feeling. Imagine this guy who has it all, and none of it really measures up to how he wants to feel. And the simha, what is it really doing for me? You know, it's it's this tragic sense of life's fragility that he's noticing, because, you know, everything that you might think is really has simha to it, when the party ends, you notice it was really quite empty, because it only lasted for a certain amount of time, All right? And And this is, this actually, every time I read this, I don't want to insert too much of my own thing. I want to let the the text speak for itself but at the same time you know i think we all confront this and for me the solution is you have to find those things that are infinitely meaningful in the time that they're done you can't only look for things that will produce something else because at the end of the day the product that you're going to really end up with is death you're going to die there's no avoiding that i mean unless you're you know really believing in the science of our time that we could You could live forever, which I don't know that that's going to happen in our lifetime. I'm sorry to break it to you. You know, the fact of the matter is you have to accept that you're going to die one day. And once you accept that, the most beautiful thing and meaningful thing we could do is find things that are infinitely meaningful while they're lived out. But I don't want to, you know, color too much of the text of my insertions of uh, my opinions. So let's look at verse number three. Tarti bilibi. Right. So latur means to investigate. Right, like the Tarim, the explorers. So this is so interesting to tempt my flesh with wine. It's almost like he's you know pulling his flesh with a with a string, with a rope and saying, Come, try this out. Let's see, let's try out all the drugs in the world and see how we like them. Right, specifically here, alcohol. So he said, I wanted to tempt my flesh with wine and to grasp folly. How interesting is that? Is he trying to grasp it intellectually? Is he trying to examine it from his left brain? I think not. I think really it's a right brain thing. It's an experiential thing. He says, you know, know, maybe all my life I was wrong. Maybe this chokhmah stuff that I was trying to engage in because, you know, right now I'm not happy. Didn't lead me anywhere. Let me go party. Let me go spend a year uh, like a college kid. Let me go just blow my brains out with alcohol and see where that leads me. And um, he wants to kind of grasp these pleasures experientially. Right. And so what do we see? While letting my mind direct with wisdom. So he, he never fully let go of himself. He never fully let go of the concept of having a mind and wisdom being important as a part of who he is fundamentally. So he still has wisdom inside of him. But he says, let me go experience this world of uh, pleasures. Right? So while letting my mind direct with wisdom to the end for the purpose that I might learn which of the two was better for men to practice in their few days of life under heaven. You don't even have to say which of the two. In the commentary here, he says you could even just say whatever behavior might prove to be good or profitable. But let me just see, let me let me find something because right now I feel so empty. And by the way, obviously, if you guys have any questions or interjections or comments, really anytime you have anything, please let me know. But we're definitely yeah, Michael.
1: What what does he mean? Yeah. Which of the two? He means obviously wisdom and um I guess folly is it
0: exactly, exactly. So that's why I don't think. Which of the two is the best translation? That's why Michael Fox disagrees with it. He thinks really okay. it's just any." What you know? What in the world is actually going to give me uh, some kind of meaning uh, in my life?
1: Right. That makes more sense. Thank yes,
0: you. I, I, I definitely see that as making more sense. "Higdalti um, ma'asai," I multiplied my possessions, and possessions is an interesting word because you don't have to say possessions per se. You could also say. My actions—I did a million different outstanding actions. Right, Right? so I did all these things. I multiplied my possessions. I built myself houses. I planted vineyards. I laid out gardens and groves in which I planted every kind of fruit tree. You know, I'm noticing this now. What does this sound like to you? Gan Eden. Right? Vaita Elohim, God uh, plants a Gan Eden and it's etz oseperi. Right? It's so, so reminiscent of Gan Eden. He's trying to set up for himself this, you know, this idyllic utopia of, uh, in, in a small microcosm in his own world. And he did all these different things and he tried to, you know, he did incredible things. He was a builder. Right? Michael. Yes.
2: I was going to say it actually sounds very like first person heavy with like a lot of lees and like, it would uh, have, it would have had the same meaning if he just said, um, but it's
0: incredible. That was my next point. I have that starred here. So though not reflected in this translation, almost every verb indicating production and acquisition is accompanied by Lee for myself. I built for myself, planted for myself, made for myself, and so on. This emphasis on myself exposes a sort of consumerism. I love that word. An obsessive striving to fill an undefined but knowing spiritual need by material goods. This attempt is, of course, hopeless. Why do I love your point so much and this point so much, Madeline? Because what do we talk about so often here in the Haya We talk about individualism and thinking of yourself as an isolated island as an individual. And that's what Western society is telling us to do today, is it not? Is it not telling us to view ourselves that way? Isn't that the way that the enlightenment philosophers kind of developed their whole philosophy? Well, what's the problem? The problem is that you get the decadence of society. The problem is that everybody who sees themselves as an individual feels completely disconnected to any kind of a group. You don't have that you know, fish mentality, that groupish mentality that Jonathan Hyde talks about. And to me, this, this is like neon flashing lights. Like, this is where you're going wrong, Kohele. If you wanted to find any kind of meaning in your life, you shouldn't have looked for it on your in, in, in your own individualistic web of a world. You should have branched out more. You should have connected more in the social relationships that you had and felt like you were part of a group. Because, you know, you could have been at the top of all of it. It reminds me of like a celebrity you know, you read some of these celebrities, what, what their lives were like, and it's pretty terrible once they become rich and famous, because they become isolated in a way. They have millions of fans, but no real friends. So, you know, that's something that we, that I started noticing a lot more in my life, how blessed I am to be part of a network like this. I'm, I work in a hospital now in, uh, in Brownsville, and you see, I, today we had a shooting victim, the guy, thank God he survived, you know, in his 20s around my age, and I'm looking at him and I'm saying this kid's part of a gang and you know who knows what his family structure is like his community structure is like we are so blessed to belong to such a strong foundation of a society the Syrian community whatever community we belong to as part of the Jewish community living here in Brooklyn we we take it so for granted because we came into the world as part of it but we don't even notice the impact that it has on us in so many ways and you know you could take a second just, just to be grateful for that and it has, believe you me, so much to do with where you are right now. As much as we want to take credit for our own actions, you're also the product of the society. All right, so that's my little soapbox on the Lee stuff. So really fantastic point, Madeline. You're really on the ball. Um, so let's continue here. I'm sorry I'm not letting anybody else read. I just because I feel like no one's going to hear it. If, we, if you guys are too distant, I feel bad. Um, so we'll continue with, with Pasuk Vav. Any questions so far? All right. Um, I constructed pools of water enough to irrigate a forest, shooting up with trees. Right. So it just keeps on with this uh, with this gan Eden kind of imagery. And again, it's it's echoing for me all this amazing accomplishment that Kohelet is having, and yet it's building really towards seemingly nothing. Kaniti avadim ushfachot. I bought male and female slaves. And I acquired stewards. I also acquired more cattle, both herds and flocks, than all who were before me in Jerusalem. So he's got everything you could possibly want. He's trying to overwhelm you. Pasuk after pasuk, he's like, in case you weren't sure, yes, I had it all. For his time, there was nothing beyond that. And you cannot accuse him of not having a practical thing in his life where he could have had meaning from it. He had any any resource he could have wanted, he had it. So it wasn't a problem of resources for him. I think he's trying to make that point very clear. And again, Mikol Shalim, just to, to reiterate our point from last week, doesn't seem like this is Shalomon because who came before Shalomon? Really, just like David and Shaul, he wouldn't say "Mikol Asher lefanai b'Yerushalayim." Shemikol Shayil lefanai b'Yerushalayim. And in in the first chapter, he says "Ali Yerushalayim." So it sounds like a king speaking on Yerushalayim, but it, it's definitely seemingly, at least, not uh, not Shlomo himself. Kanasti li gam kesef asahav, u'skulat nalachim ha'medinot. I sitili shirim ve'sharot ve'tanugot. I further amassed silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. Imagine you had all this stuff. Imagine you literally did not have to lift the finger the rest of your life, and you earned all of it. How would you feel? You probably feel pretty good for a little while. But then who knows? If you don't really have the meaningful stuff of life, it kind of doesn't last too long, right? And I got myself male and female singers, as well as the luxuries of commoners, Coffers and coffers of them, right? So this is just an interesting word. What does Shidav Shidot mean? The Mishnah, it means coffer, uh, which I believe is just uh, a large amount. I don't know if anybody else really knows what that means, but uh, I think it just means tons and tons of, uh, of people. Um, Ibn Ezra explains that it's women. You know, women take it as, as spoils of war. However you interpret it, he's just, again, reiterating how much he has.
2: Isn't I thought Shed was a demon? Am right, yeah. I way off?
0: Yes. No. I uh, Shed is definitely a demon. Shida, though, I don't. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I I hate to uh, to say women are demons, but but <laughs> honestly, honestly, I think I believe that you
2: wouldn't be saying it. Kohelet would be saying it.
0: Exactly. First of all, <laughs> Kohelet would be saying about <laughs> me. Double,
2: and, a, I
1: guess it, so it's double.
0: So, shed is only one, though. Uh, ah, interesting. So, like... Sure um, about, 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 yeah, true. But I think the shortage could be the same, you know? So, it really could be. But I, I think <laughs> there might be some idea that, that uh, you know, women were, were like, uh, seductresses and sirens. Yeah. So, that, that's what it reminds me of. And I did think of that when I was reading it last night. So, I'm glad you said it and not me. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So we'll just kind of leave that alone for now before I get into too much trouble. A lot of women in this class. Um, Okay. Uh, Yes. No, but there's a digestion in the Dalit, so it's doubled, so it can't be the same choice. Shiddah. You're saying like shudad. Agreed. dalit. Yes. I said it's Shindah. Yes. So you're right, but I I don't know that, uh, that it has to be that way all the time. Like, why can't it be sometimes that is the same shodesh. You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but sometimes you have a dagesh in a place where it's not necessarily a double uh, lashon. But we'll, leave we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards because it's too, too nitty-gritty for now. Uh, but, but I definitely want to hear Amdali. I love this pasuk, right? Thus I gained more wealth than anyone before me in Jerusalem. In addition, my wisdom remained with me. So he has all this wealth but, and I love how he, he kind of has this idea, my wisdom stood by me. Wisdom served Kohelet as a helper and supporter. Its service was twofold. It served him well in earning his wealth and it kept him from abandoning good sense while it was amassing that wealth. So he's a person that's, it's almost like he, you know, when you meditate, you kind of, you want to notice the thoughts that pass through your head. So for me, the way I read it is his wisdom is almost like his consciousness. He's He's allowing himself to observe everything that's happening to him throughout his life. But he's still always conscious with a wise mind of everything that's happening and saying, "Okay, is this truth? Is this meaningful? It's a very philosophical way of living and it's a very meaningful way of living. A lot of people, you know, it's almost the curse of wisdom. When you're wise enough, you're smart enough to realize how ridiculous everything is. If you're not wise enough, you kind of get lost in the story very easily. And in a way, that ignorance is really bliss. But for for Kohelet, his wisdom is in a lot of ways a curse because it forces him to confront these ideas constantly. And Ti Amdali, it's a very valiant thing. I think it's very inspiring that he, he maintains this Hokma through it all. Any questions so far? Please. Ah, 100%. I think uh, once you... And I, you know, I, I was on the this, this, this same journey myself this year. I've been grappling a lot with what are the limits of rationalism, you know, my class that I gave. And and it's it, I mentioned that a couple of times in the previous class. And for me, it's so clear that wisdom is great and intellectualism is great. And reasoning is it's so important. And it's I love science. I love all that. But when it comes to God. It, it almost hinders me if I want to really meditate and sit down. If I'm too much in that rationalistic head, if I'm still in the medical mindset from the day, if I'm not able to let that go, I'm not going to have a good meditation. I'm not going to be able to pray very well. So there's something to be said about, and I keep mentioning it, the duality of the human brain. The human brain, you have this left hemisphere, right hemisphere, and it's not so cut and dry. But the left hemisphere you know, primarily is dealing with this idea of logic and reasoning versus the right hemisphere, which is more of a experiential thing, a creative thing, an artful thing. And that's, I think, where the God experience happens more. So it seems that this is exactly the curse of too much wisdom. You can't get out of your own head and you don't allow yourself to just experience the world. And enlightenment, according to a lot of the Eastern traditions, enlightenment really just was this concept of simply allowing yourself to just be with whatever's happening. Just experience it and enjoy the experience. And, and the thoughts that happen are not that important. Just let them pass by. Let them flow through you. Um, so So let's continue before I get a little too Buddhist in this class. Uh, right? I withheld from my eyes nothing they asked for. Lo manati and denied myself no enjoyment. Rather, I got enjoyment out of all my wealth. And that was all I got out of my wealth. Right? So it's interesting because, again, he's trying to emphasize to you, like, no, I didn't just have the wealth and worry about it. I enjoyed it. I, took, I, I partook in all of the wealth that I, that I had. I wasn't just saving it for a rainy day or for the grandchildren. I was enjoying it. And still, even with that, it was devoid of profit. It was senseless. It was inadequate at the end of the day. And that's the real tragedy that he's feeling. And this this idea of Amali, all my toil was for nothing. It wasn't just about, you know, really the wealth itself. But the toil that led to the wealth was also meaningless. And that's what really gets him, is the realization that the struggle is not redeemed. That's something that I, you know, personally, I think is a very important concept for us as humans. Jordan Peterson talks about it in his book, 12 Rules for Life. And he actually just came out with a new book, um, Beyond Order. And I think it's like seven more rules for life. 12 more? It could be 12 more. Sorry, yes, it is 12 more. I read seven other rules for life today. It's, to to yes, exactly. It's incredible. <laughs> so in this book, he talks about the concept of sacrifice. That as humans, we make a covenant with the world. We say, if I sacrifice. These next few days planting in the vineyard. That's my sacrifice. Please, God. Sorry, these next few months, you know, planting in the vineyard. Please, God, give me some grapes. And that's the covenant that we're making as humans. We all do it. Atheists do it. Atheists who work hard at their job. They're making a covenant with their job to get the payoff at the end of the day. Whatever you're doing, you're investing in your future whenever you're doing this stuff. And the biggest tragedy of the world is when that investment doesn't pay off. And by the way, when we were reading the stuff before about and what else did it bring up for me? I'm very curious if you guys could read my mind right now. What, what else in the Torah sounds like that? And has to do exactly with this concept of sacrifice. To war. There you go. I know you both had it. Exactly. It's this concept of before you go out to war, who's not allowed to go to war? Who was the guy that built the house, didn't live in it? Who was the guy that planted a vineyard, didn't enjoy its, uh, its grapes yet and its wine? Who was the man that got engaged to a woman and still did not get the chance to marry her? So the big tragedy of all that is that this is a person who sacrificed. He did all the work. He toiled to no end. And it would be the biggest injustice, the biggest shame, if he were not able to enjoy the fruits of his labor. And, uh, you know, I remember, Madeline, you remember that article that I wrote about this exact concept, and, I, and it, the whole point of it was the value of each human life being like a world where we we each have this infinite value. And, you know, you can't even put it into words, but the Torah is trying to express that throughout that whole parasha of the, the value of human life is so infinite that we're trying to impress upon you the tragedy that would happen if a person was not able to enjoy the fruits of their labor, quite literally. It sounds like uh, the myth of Sisyphus as well. Ah, yes, Albert. I'm glad to hear you. Yes, absolutely. Explain. Well, you know, you roll the mountain, you roll the, the boulder up the mountain just to watch it, you know, go down and only to go do it
1: again and again. Um, exactly. I guess you could find some kind of joy of rolling it down, but um, maybe after a few days, you wouldn't.
0: Beautiful. So this is the nihilistic abyss, that the Sisyphus was cursed to push this boulder up the mountain every day. And then he knew at the end of the day that it would roll back down. And, you know, his 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 toils actually meant nothing. And that's what Kohelet is trying to impress upon us as the reader, that exact tragedy. So let's. Can, uh, I, can I say one more through. thing
2: about this pasuk before we go on? Absolutely. Um, for other Disney fans, the Vizehaya Chelkin Mikola Mali is making me think of the last lyric in Colors of the Wind.
0: Oh, I love that.
2: Um, you can own the earth, and still all you'll own is earth until you can paint with all the colors of the wind. Wow, like you can you can amass great amounts of wealth and property and land, but it's going to amount to earth dirt if you don't really appreciate it.
0: If you have no spirituality in if your you, life,
2: right? If you don't have the type of wisdom to to breathe life into it, if you can't paint with all the colors of the wind, exactly, then you own dirt.
0: Precisely, I, I couldn't agree more, and I think that's the. The thing that a lot of, you know, it's almost a tragedy that atheists today will tell you, but my reason tells me that's the tragic truth. The tragic truth that is that all there is, is this stuff. My response is, why did you convince yourself that the only means to truth is reason? What if there were more truths than just reason? And that was the whole class that I had given on the limits of rationalism. Um, so, ani, Pasuk 11, yada'i, she'amati hevel ruah. So again, he's, he's just repeating this idea. My thoughts turned to all the fortune my hands had built up to the wealth I had acquired and won. And oh, it was all futile in pursuit of wind. There was no real value under the sun. Nothing is really worth it because of everything we've been saying that nothing actually lasts. It, there's no actual payoff for the toil because the reward is not worth the, uh, the, the toil that brought it about. Um, So let's look at Pasuk 12. So now from Pasuk 12 to Pasuk 17, he's going to analyze in particular wisdom and folly. So pay attention. It's really interesting. So we won't translate it yet because they switch it around. Sorry. Sorry. I just gave away my, the interpretation that I'm going to change it to, you're right, it's <laughs> a You'll see what I mean in a second. For what will the man be like who will succeed, the one who is ruling over what was built up long ago? Unintelligible? Yes, to me it's pretty unintelligible. But you tell me if you think you understand what that means. My thoughts also turn to appraising wisdom and madness and folly. So the, the second half of the English is the first half of the Hebrew. So he's saying, I'm going to go and analyze wisdom and folly. But this other thing, does it sounds a little weird. So what will the man be like who will succeed? The one who is ruling over what was built up long, long ago. So it's almost like, okay, someone's succeeding somebody else. And there was something that was built up. But who is it? So a very interesting thing that uh, I believe it's the Septuagint. Um, and what else was it? A couple of different. Uh, oh, sorry. Maybe it's not the Septuagint. There's, there's a, just a different vocalization you could read it as. So read it from to So read it as the person after me who will rule. So what Kohelet is saying is I'm king right now. But who knows who in the world is going to be the person who's going to be after me, which is a very scary thought. Who am I passing all this wealth onto? Who am I passing all this power onto? Um, and the answer is going to come in Hasuk 18 and 19. We're going to hear about his successor. All right? so um, now we're going to talk about wisdom and madness and folly. right? so specifically, uh, madness and folly is a single concept, and there's this idea of foolish madness that we'll see. Any questions on that? Okay, great. <laughs> I found that wisdom is superior to folly as light is superior to darkness. So this is really interesting because Kohelet is lauding wisdom. It's, it's superlative to him. It's the most important thing. Even if, even if wisdom ends up being hevel, he never doubts its vast superiority to folly. Even if folly itself is hevel, there is still something that he sees in wisdom That's inherently valuable, even if it all leads to just complete nonsense, right? So, but the the, the point that he's trying to make here is he's lauding wisdom in order to set us up as the reader for the disappointment that the wise and the foolish share one fate. We both die. We both get buried. That's it, right? So he's lamenting the limits of human wisdom. He's saying, wisdom is incredible. Wisdom is great. And you know what? Wisdom is better than folly. But at the end of the day, wisdom and folly both end up in the grave, right? So this is the fragility of his achievements. He's hitting you again with it by emphasizing how great wisdom is. It's incredible. But he never doubts. Again, like we said, he never doubts that wisdom is more important than folly in and of itself. Right? So let's translate this. Oh, we said already that it's, wisdom is superior to folly as light is superior to darkness. <laughs> Right? Interestingly enough, that, that, uh, that appears in the Gemara, but we won't get into that now. Right? A wise man has his eyes in his head, whereas a fool walks in darkness. But I also realized that the same fate awaits them both. Right, So everybody's going to end up with the same pretty sad fate. Right? And it's not fun to, to hear about that. Right? So he's just emphasizing that. skip so much here so I reflected the fate of the fool is also destined for me he says I'm so smart I've dedicated my life to intellectual honesty to probing the world as much as I could and yet what happens the fate of the fool is also destined for me I'm going to be the same way as the fool to what advantage then have I been wise and I came to the conclusion right Um, And I came to the conclusion that that too was futile. So this is really just the pit of his despair regarding all his life's achievements. He says, I could have worked so hard, and yet it really amounts to nothing. And that's the tragedy of it all. Because the wise man, just like the fool is not remembered forever, right? For as the succeeding days roll by, both are forgotten. Alas, the wise man dies just like the fool. So everybody's going to die. Everybody, everybody's going to be forgotten. No matter how smart you were, you're going to be forgotten. And, you know, even if if you wrote something down, Within the span of a couple of generations, most likely, they're not really going to remember you. Ironically enough, what are we reading right now? We're reading what he wrote. That's just hitting me right now. Little did he know, he's not forgotten. Very good for him, right? That the irony of ironies is that he is lamenting something that we cannot believe by virtue of us reading what he's writing. So in a very ironic sense. You know, you could kind of see the beauty in that. We live on in our ideas in a way. Uh, I don't know how much, you know, in an ego sense, it's not exactly satisfying, but in a non ego sense, it's beautiful because we could live on in good ideas. We never know the butterfly effect that we could have, right? So we kind of notice a little bit of the black and white thinking that he falls into. Um, and how about this word? <laughs> Again, who could read my mind? Why am I focusing on this word Right? What do we know? That's like a question. Say again.
2: It sounds like a rhetorical question.
0: It is certainly I'm
2: just very disappointed.
0: To me, it's very reminiscent of this oh. lament, and he also points that out here in the commentary. The, the it's a lamentation almost. If This was a little bit more of a religious book, it would sound a lot like Abraham Avinu, right? Uh, uh, right? Um, you know, how could you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? So he's not addressing this question to God, he's addressing it rhetorically, but it's the same question, and I would argue it is a moral question in a way. He's challenging God himself, and he's saying, I know, you know he takes it axiomatically that God is the creator and God is, has this tremendous wisdom, but he cannot understand how could God allow this to be the fate of both types of people. It's not something that he's really able to come to terms with. All right, death deletes these distinctions of quality that should be respected. You know, God, and a just world, The quality of someone's life should be respected, but it's not. Right? And now look at, really, this is uh, very severe here. Ironically, because, right, look. (inaudible) I hated life. (inaudible) So what's happening now? He's getting so bummed out about death. He's getting so bummed out about the great equalizer that death is that he starts to loathe life. He turns it on its head. He says, well, if that's the end, then the whole story is really pretty meaningless. Now, personally, the way I would respond to that is you don't have to come to that conclusion. Just because we all die doesn't mean that what we do here cannot be meaningful for its time. Something doesn't have to be permanent for it to be beautiful. And Rabbi Hittery keeps quoting, The good place, if you've watched that show, you know this idea that you know, if you had this endless, endless afterlife, after a little while, it would kind of seem meaningless and you would want to dissolve in a way into all of everything and whatever that means. You know, it's it's hard to even speak about it, but you know, without the destination of the journey, the journey itself is meaningless. So I would flip his question on its head. If there was no such thing as death, I would think that life is pretty meaningless. Uh, Because then you could just do whatever you want all the time and nothing and then really nothing matters. But once you know that there's a sense of urgency, it adds so much more meaning. All right. But I don't want to get too positive here because I want to give voice to his negative thoughts. Um, It's part of therapy. You know, if I want to be a good psychiatrist, you know, I can't just try to cheer up my patients every time they express to me negative thoughts. I have to sit with and leave space for the negative, which is something I'm, I'm not always comfortable doing. With my friends, you know, it's something you know, they could testify. It's not something I usually do. I usually try to end things on a positive note, but a good psychiatrist probably wouldn't do that. So let me keep learning. <laughs> it's a day by day process. God knows that, um, right? So <laughs> I load life, for I was distressed by all that goes on under the sun, because everything is futile and pursuit of blame. And right, so he's just completely bummed out. Uh, Pasuk 18, right? So first of all, this is very interesting before we move on. um, Whereas in 2.12 to 17, which we just read, he reported his experiences and observations and concluded with his reaction to them. Kohelet now begins with his emotional reaction in the next, next Pasuk 18, also a sense of loathing and proceeds to explain what led up to it. So in a way, it's a chiasm because he started off With experiences and observations, and then emotions. And then he's going to start with emotions and then go to experiences and observations. So he's kind of sandwiching it. And at the very center of the sandwich of the chiasm is this great despair. So it's another literary technique, I believe, that he's using to emphasize this despair that he's going through. So this this section, 18 to 26, till the end of the chapter, is toil and pleasure, wisdom and folly. So it's a combination of everything. So too, I loved all the wealth that I was gaining under the sun. Um, Why did I hate it even more? For I shall leave it to the man who will succeed me. It's almost like you can imagine the baby boomers of today. Imagine you're a baby boomer and you worked so hard, you were part of, You know, your father told you stories. Your father was the greatest generation. Your father was in D-Day and uh, bullets were flying and he he just narrowly escaped death. And he told you about the sacrifice that he made. You're a baby. boomer. You're a product of that. You believe in these traditional values. And then your grandson comes home and he has nails painted. His hair is dyed pink and he has a nose ring and six earrings on the left ear and then nothing on the right ear. And there's like an absence of space in the earlobe, you know, and he's telling you that progressivism is this stuff and he hates religion and God is dead. And imagine how you would feel. You worked your whole life. You were part of this grand narrative and the story and your grandson is being, you know, completely brainwashed in, in college campuses, you know, as, as they say um, the more open-minded you are, then the easier it is for your brain to fall out. I think a lot of the colleges today are suffering from that. So that's just my own personal bias. I just have this passion for this topic. But imagine you're that old man and your whole wealth is being transferred to this grandson. How would you feel? This kid doesn't know the first thing about wisdom. This kid's so educated, he doesn't know the first thing about common sense. I'm going to pass on my life's work to him? That's Hevel. That's Reut ruah. if I ever heard it in my life. Please, God, let that not happen to me. Um, for I shall leave it to the man who will succeed me. If anybody gets offended, please let me know. I'll take great pride in it. Um, I'm only I'm only kidding, please don't cancel me. amalai amali. Sorry, I can't really see it. Vishlat, sorry, vishlat, who knows whether he will be wise or foolish? Who do, you don't know. Question? Yes? I'm, I'm just very shocked that he says this because, I mean, who knows whether, like, who knows that the man that will succeed after me will be wise or foolish? It's within his own hands in Is it though? Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: What if he gets old and frail? And he and his his the son that's the eldest you know by whatever rule, is a real dip. Yeah,
2: but it's his life choices that got him to.
0: You can't control how your kids turn out. No,
2: no, no. I'm talking about him specifically. His children make the same mistakes that
0: he did. Not necessarily.
2: Very eerily similar.
0: Oh no, I'm not, We're not talking about Shilomo here. We're talking about kohelit. No, <laughs> that's the thing. Sorry, yeah, I didn't. I didn't understand what you were saying. Shalomo, okay, you want to say even Shalomo, who knows how much he controlled, then you're right. he did make a lot of mistakes in his life. but a person like Kohilit, let's say it's just a a fictional person. this kind of a person has no way of knowing who it's gonna be. who is going to be the son that that passed that that he's gonna pass the baton on, right? So let's continue. Uh, but but good point because if it were Shalomo, you that that was a very uh, solid question. and It's a discussion for another time. The authorship, but a good question, Um, right? uh, So, and he will control all the wealth that I gained by toil and wisdom under the sun. That too is.
1: So I wanted to say something. He, um, you know, you don't hear family, right? You don't hear the word family anywhere in this whole uh, so far. I know we're not that far in, but obviously, you know, he's not really emphasizing human contact and human relations. And so when he's saying, "Who's going to inherit me?" He, you know, I, I mean, it's hard to understand it. But in his head, he has no relationships with anyone. I mean, that's what it seems like. So yeah. whether it's his son or it's a stranger, makes no difference to him. He it's for whatever reason he set it up that you know there. I don't understand it exactly, but there's no family. Like you know, you're thinking, "Oh, it's going to be his son," but to him, he clearly he's not talking about people. He talks about possessions. He talks about things he has. You know Nezer says, I don't see the word love here, I don't see wife, I don't see child, I don't see any type
0: of... said yeah. He will mention later on in the book the wife stuff, like he'll come to the conclusions, but in this despair, I think you're making a great point. When are you in the most despair? I believe uh, it was Emile Durkheim who says that we are, the real depression is when we feel cut off from the real ties, it's the real social ties that we have, we forget, we delude ourselves into forgetting about the social ties that we have. And when we feel utterly disconnected from the group, that's when we are most depressed. So it says a lot. Depression has everything to do with the groupishness of humans. And that's why I think the leftist narrative of individualism is leading to these profoundly high rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, you name it. I blame it on that. I really do. You know. And I, I think that unless you could build strong groups you're not going to succeed if you're dealing with humans. That's just a fact of who we are as people. Unless you, you have you know, some kind of disorder like schizoid personality disorder and you're okay living in a lighthouse the rest of your life. I'm not talking about those people, obviously. But that's exactly the point, Doc, is you're, is you're 100% right that Kohelet speaks about others in this chapter, at least, as his possessions. Only as they relate to him, not as individuals, not as I and thou but I and it. You know, so these are really important points. So I came to view with despair all the gains I had made under the sun. Right, naturally now he's going to be in despair because he's thinking in such negative terms about everything and the lack of profitability of toil. (laughs) For sometimes a person whose fortune was made with wisdom, knowledge, and skill must hand it on to be the portion of somebody who did not toil for it. That too is futile and grave evil. So, you know, sometimes we see people in our lives that they're the the son or daughter of a very wealthy person, and we go to work every day, and we're working our, our, you know, tails off. And... We can't understand how is this just this person sits on their behind all day and they don't do anything and they were born into wealth and they seem pretty happy. Well, ironically, you know, I don't what I think Kohelet is overlooking here is the joy that you can have in work for its own sake. If you and I was trying to withhold myself from saying all this, but I, we're, we're nearing the end of the chapter and I'll allow myself to say it. What about flow? What about doing things in a way where you are so engrossed that you lose yourself in your work because you enjoy it so much. What about you're being creative, you know, and uh, so many different things that you could do and that, that bring out your talents and your passions. To him, he calls it amal. It's toil. It's meaningless work. And it's only for the, the sake of the ends that it achieves. Any psychologist today would be like, okay, bro, you're in the wrong job. Find a new job, go to a life coach. Find it, if you see your work as toil, you know, you're just screwing on the heads of Barbie dolls and on the conveyor belt. Of course you're not going to like what you're doing. Go find a new job. But, you know, it seems that this is what happens when we're depressed. We forget how to challenge our thoughts. We get stuck in a specific thought pattern that is really quite unproductive. All right, so let's continue. Gamzehehevel uh, Araba, Pasuk 22. Ki la'adam bechol amalo." For what does a man get for all the toiling and worrying he does under the sun? Right, so what really is there for us? Let me just make one one more point before we continue. So Kohelet considers this absurd and unfair, this idea of the toilet doesn't have any payoff. It's a grave evil because he does not seem to feel a connection to future generations. So just to reiterate your point, Dr. Nasser, is that another thing, not even if you, even if you didn't see your work as, as, as uh, flow, even if your work didn't bring out your passions and wasn't enjoyable in and of itself for you, even if you were screwing on Barbie doll heads when on the conveyor belt, if you had this idea of I'm doing it for my wife and my kids, that's beautiful. I think even the manufacturer would find a lot of meaning in that in screwing in the Barbie dolls because he's doing it for the, but he, he seems to have removed himself from all other people. He doesn't have the narrative around the toil. So, so much of what we do as humans depends on the narrative that we build around our lives. So, it's up to us to write a good story. You choose the way you want to frame it. Frame your day beautifully. Frame your work in a meaningful way. If you're not doing it, find a way to do that. Every day, get up in the morning and don't say, and I heard this from my friend, Morris Franco. Don't say, I have to go to work and I have to do this and I have to do that. Instead, I get to. I get to go to the hospital. I get to treat sick patients in the in the, the surgical ICU. I get to do these things. It's tiring. I wake up every day at 4 a.m. And I, and I work hard. But at the end of the day, I get to do it. And it's enjoyable. And I get to make jokes with the nurses. And I get to see a smile on the face of some of the patients. And I get to hold the door open. These are not things you have to do in a way. They're things you get to do. They're opportunities. So it's really all about the way you frame your life. And I think this is why we love Kohelet so much is because by learning from Kohelet, we can see what not to do, how not to frame your life if you don't want to end up depressed and nihilistic like he is. Um, not that nihilism in and of itself is evil, just really, I think, a specific type of nihilism in this. Um, okay, great. Any questions so far? Okay, great. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll have, I'm sure we'll have a good discussion when we're done with the chapter. Almost there. Um, All right, so he said, "For what? So what does a man get for all the toiling and worrying he does under the sun? What do you really get? All his days, his thoughts are grief and heartache, and even the nights, his mind has no respite. That too is futile. So this is really interesting. Either this is talking about the idea that a person is working really hard, and even in that toil." It's not, it's even worse because he's worrying about it, worrying about losing the, the, the money that he has and also worried about getting the ba'ah the next day. How am I going to make, close the deal tomorrow? So it just adds this idea, the toil, the mental work that it is, is even worse than it might've even seemed earlier. So again, I would respond if I was this guy's therapist, I would say, well, how do you respond to that? Are, are there things to do, meditation, psychotherapy, CBT, changing your thought patterns in order to not think so extremely and not be so obsessed with success and instead try to enjoy the process. We've we've become so obsessed with the end goal that we forget to just enjoy the process. And I think that's something I try to do during my days just to take a second and, and feel into the moment and enjoy the process of where I am and be mindful. Mindfulness to me is really the key to so much of this there is nothing worthwhile for a man but to eat and drink and afford himself enjoyment with his means. So because everything else is meaningless, because there is really no substance to anything else that I've found in my life, the only prophet that I could find is when we whether we experience pleasure depends on God, not on human efforts. That's interesting. He's also saying, you know what, it, it comes from God. It does ultimately come from God, whether or not we're going to be able to enjoy. You could eat the honey, but if your mind's not at ease, which he's considering in God's hands, and again, I might even disagree with that. I think you have uh, uh, free will to control how much you enjoy things, but we'll leave that aside for now. He ends up with this very nihilistic conclusion That the only thing worthwhile is not um, amal, it's not enjoying the fruits of your labor. It's once you have wealth, don't work for it. Don't go and work for the wealth, but just treat yourself. Treat yourself to food and drink and enjoy it because really nothing else is worthwhile. How sad is that? How sad is that that person reaches the level where they really can't, you know, feel into the meaning of anything but strictly carnal pleasures.
1: Yes. But what's he saying? I don't understand what uh, Elohim is. What? Is First of all, God, this reference to God here is, is strange. I had a place. We didn't hear God the whole time. And now he just throws it in and it, it doesn't even make sense. To me.
0: It's a great point. And, you know, it also hit me when I, when I saw this idea of God, I think he does mention God in chapter one, a couple of times. Uh, I don't remember exactly where, but, he does take it as you know, as a, an axiom throughout the book that God is the ruler over everything and there is a God on top of this world and he's the creator. But he just is not able to understand how God works. So that's true. But I hear your point is that why does he say that enjoying these carnal pleasures comes from God? What could he possibly mean? So in the, in the commentary here, Michael Fox says, And even that, I know it comes from God. Whether we experience pleasure depends on... That
1: translation is a little off, too. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but you read it in English and then you read the Hebrew and you're like, that's not what it says. (laughs) Sorry, please continue.
0: Yeah, no, no problem. But I I agree with you. It it reads very strangely. Something seems a little bit off. But I think the point really is the experience of the pleasure itself. You can engage in pleasurable activities, but in, in order for you to actually feel pleasure... That comes from God. So if you have a clinically depressed patient, you could give him all the apples dipped in honey for the next month. He will be depressed. He will not enjoy it. That is from God. And I think he's saying, you know what? Just you got to get lucky here. If you're in a good state, you have a good time. You enjoy some food and drink. That's the best you could hope for in life. This lucky.
1: What what he's saying is, is it good or is it bad? Like, I can't tell. When he says it's from Kimiade Elohim, He's saying, like, is is it good that it's coming from Hashem? I I don't think it's a moral. What is it? I
0: don't think here Elohim has anything to do with the morality of what's happening. I think he's saying God controls in a very haphazard way. And by the way, we're going to mention that in a few minutes, uh, how he views God. I'm going to make a couple of points at the end of the chapter about it, where we have two more Pesukim. But yes, it's not about God's approval or disapproval of it in a moral sense. When he invokes God here. It's almost like God in his mercurial frivolity is going to decide how things work out. And is this person going to enjoy it or not? Is this person going to have enough endorphins and enough serotonin to enjoy it? That's completely out of my hands, and that's all up to God. But yeah, we'll, we'll see in one second what, how Michael Fox is going to explain the, the uh, invocation of God. So let's just finish this up. Kimi, now it's up
1: also up. God plural, right?
0: Elohim yes is god plural so it's it's definitely Could you not mean like plural. gods isn't
1: like greek gods like the you know kind of the faith uh, like not, not not anything clear
0: exactly so so this is a very sad stage when you kind of divorce god from morality and when the times when you invoke god is just about happenstance and the way that things play out it's not really the way that we view god today it seems right so kimyo khal umia mi for who eats and who enjoys but myself Right, what the heck could that possibly mean? So what does this say? So again, now this is where I was putting earlier, the Septuagint and the Peshitta, and some Hebrew manuscripts read instead of the word Mimeni here, they read Mimenu, from him. Right, so uh, because the Masoretic text, text says Mimeni, from me. So instead of translating from me, we say, for who will eat or who will fret apart from him? Apart from God. So the point is that no one receives life's pleasures or worries apart from God. Who decides a person's fortune, as the next verse emphasizes, and in a few chapters from now. So the point is, this Dr. Nasser, this is a, a trying to answer the question you just raised about Elohim. The only person, the only being that's deciding who is going to actually enjoy and who is not going to enjoy is God himself. God is determining who enjoys and who doesn't, right? And he's not saying that in a divine justice kind of a way. So let's see. Let's see Pasuk 26. Right? To the man, namely, who pleases him, he has given the wisdom and shrewdness to enjoy himself. Right? And to, the, to him who, who displeases, he has given the urge to gather in a mess, only for handing on to one who is pleasing to God. Right? So, sorry, I didn't show you guys the English. So, this is also uh, completely ridiculous in his mind. So, I'll just read you the commentary. It's extremely interesting. We read this as Hote and as a person who's doing good, as this idea of a moral judgment. But it's the arbitrary nature of God's justice that he's emphasizing here. This hoté is not hoté in an absolute moral sense. He's hoté in that he didn't know necessarily what God wanted because what God wanted was completely arbitrary. And not in the sense that, oh, you know, God was a moral agent asking us to do certain things. It's the way that things play out proves what God wanted. So if a person ends up winning the lottery... That's in a way, okay, that was, you know, he was doing what God wanted because things turned out well for him, not because he necessarily did anything good. And if somebody, you know, was a very successful person and they slipped and fell and died. That's not because they were, you know, a hotet in a moral sense, just because God arbitrarily said, oh, you know, that's it for you. You're gone. Right. So it's reminiscent of the Epic of Gilgamesh, right, in comparison to Noah, Noah, God, the one moral God wants to destroy the world because mankind is not being moral. Epic of Gilgamesh, multiple gods are fighting and they're annoyed at at humanity because they're making too much noise. Stop that racket down there. Yeah, I mean that's all it is. So he's kind of reverting back to that polytheistic arbitrariness of the world and that's the scariest thing for us as humans to try to stare into that abyss of nihilism, this abyss of meaninglessness. These are the paths you get led down. So I'll just read you briefly what he writes here. However, as many interpreters recognize, the hotteh here is not one who has really sinned, for if he had, then the resulting deprivation would be just, not senseless. The hotê is rather one who has offended God in some way. Kohelet seems to be using the word facetiously in quotation marks. He's hotte as it were. The unfortunate sinner has offended God, perhaps for inexplicable reasons. We'll see that later in the book or perhaps by pushing too hard for material gain instead of enjoying life. What's the, the punishment that he's listening here is a person who's too obsessed with working hard. That's not the punishment we would expect for a sinner. It's a punishment of, you know what, you're, you're working so hard and you're not enjoying it. He's saying, yeah, that's the biggest punishment of them all. And that's the, the ridiculousness of the way this world works in his mind. Right. So it's inexplicable. Pushing too hard for material gain for uh, which is what God wants people to do, right? Sorry, instead of enjoying life. So enjoying life is what God wants people to do. So if you were just a complete eat and drink today and for tomorrow we die, then you would be like the guy doing what God wants. But if you're working hard, you're, you're, doing, you're the hote guy because you're just screwed. You're a person who has to deal with horrible, horrible things of hard work that has no payoff. Um, and we'll just end with this idea right the wisdom and knowledge transferred to the fortunate person can be understood in two ways the products of wisdom or the wisdom to do what is beneficial namely to take it easy and enjoy what falls to one's lot kohelet means this as a paradox on the one hand wisdom which includes savvy and cleverness is the means of attaining wealth and wealth makes pleasure possible possible on the other hand person who did not toil had the real wisdom the good sense to take it easy whatever the logic of the process, there is still a disjunction between effort and result, and this is senseless." So he's so bothered by this fact that you could work so hard and not gain anything out of it, but you know what? Okay, you have some means to enjoy and you enjoy the pleasure of that, but the real wise man was the dib who did nothing and just went to his neighbor's house and party. That is meaningless in his mind. And we'll end with one final point before we open up to questions, to more questions. Kohelet sees himself as an example of a man who toils and strains to accumulate without wealth uh, accumulate wealth without benefiting from it and who is a sinner and displeases God. Kohelet was unable to follow his own advice to avoid moderate, immoderate labors and to enjoy what comes to hand. A, a cloud of unnamed guilt hangs over him even if he has not violated God's commandments. So he's a hoté, not in a moral sense, but he's hoté in the sense that he did not take his own advice to avoid hard work. He's looking back at his life and saying what a dib I was. If only I sat on my behind and did nothing, then I really would have been doing the thing that makes life most enjoyable. So I feel almost obligated not to end on a negative note here, which is my nature. Um, I think it's so clear, as we're pointing out, time after time, the black and white thinking, the catastrophization, the personalization, where he's going wrong. Like I said last time, if you gain nothing else out of this class, gain the idea of first of all the catharsis of what we're doing. Second of all, notice where he's going wrong. Notice where you don't want to fall into these st- same thought patterns. Consider yourself part of a group. Not panitili, kanitili, asitili, haja with that. See yourself as part of a group. Write your own story. Refuse to, to buy into the narrative that he's buying into because, at the end of the day, the pen and paper is in your hand. You frame it however you want. You want to live a life like this? Go ahead, write the tragedy. No one's stopping you. But if you want, you have every right and every capability of finding this, this way of framing your story as a valiant one, as much struggle as goes into it. For God knows there's a lot of struggle. But if you do things as inherently meaningful, They go from toil to meaningful work. And I think that's the biggest blessing we can learn from Kohelet is he's passing on to us all this stuff. And ironically, he didn't even know the impact and the meaning that he's giving us with his sense of meaninglessness. So thank you for for listening and uh, thank you for participating. Um, I would love to hear any questions or comments that you guys have from on Zoom and in person. Anybody? All right. I guess everyone's uh, you're processing. You're tired and processing. I don't blame you. It's definitely a lot to process. Uh, I think this is perfect time to to end. You guys were were awesome. Really, thank you for your comments. Um, and please, whenever you want to interject, you know, please don't don't feel guilty to, to stop me. Um, so uh, looking forward to the next class, and of course, text me, email me anything, uh, any questions that you have, and uh, and this I think. It's an ongoing conversation, and that's the beauty of what's going on. So, Hazak, Ubaruch, and uh, thank you. Thank you very much, everybody.
1: Thanks again, Michael. Excellent. Great class, Mike. Thank mm-hmm. you. Really thank awesome. you. Guys.